Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Hello, and welcome to the Sanctum Secorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We're here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. I am Keeper Jen, and with me tonight are Keeper Mark. Hello, everyone. And Keeper Bob. Hey, folks. How you doing? And tonight... We examine a singular work by Abraham Merritt, The Moon Pool. Technically, it's a fix-up of two works, The Moon Pool and Conquest of the Moon Pool, but who are we to quibble? (laughs) Mark, do you want to tell us about it? Sure. It was the portal to a fantastic world. Into it came four men, a scientist seeking knowledge, a sea captain seeking his lost wife and child, an aviator seeking romance, and a Russian spy seeking power. What they found was a gleaming city and a mystery as old as time, the maddening enigma of the shining city. Adventure follows adventure and marvel follows marvel, up to the climax when, in all its splendor of evil, radiant beauty, the shining one sweeps forward to conquer the stronghold of the three. Mmm... Tasty story. (laughs) Yes, there's so much going on with this. (laughs) Abraham Merritt at his some of his earliest and yet best. Yeah, this is one I think it's it's my favorite. I know we did Creep Shadow Creep before. Mm -hmm. I don't know what what year that was, but And Burn Witch Burn and Shipwish. Yeah. And and those are fun, but this one is the first book I read of Merritt. It's one of these like it's an early one where He's putting on a lot of his style and you know, you know, thought, and it's just it's very creative and it's just very um, fantastical, you know. So I think there's a lot to like here, um, and it's lengthy compared to the others, right? Yeah, and compared to I think compared to Creep Shadow Creep and Burn Witch Burn, now he does have other novels that are in the same sort of um, genre tenor, you know. Which the other one I've read of his is Dwellers. Um, Beyond the, beyond the, the yeah, beyond the mirage, which is it's actually really interesting because this was written early in his career, and you know I think there's a lot of that we can pull from here, parallels to Lovecraft or even influences on Lovecraft that we'll probably get into. Oh, but absolutely. the Dwellers Beyond the Mirage was written 1934, 1935, I think, and so it it really spanned this sort of bookended period when you know he and Lovecraft were um, sharing influences, and and in Dwellers there's actually these kind of uh, references to Cthulhu, right? You know, but it's, it's named somewhat <laughs> differently. So it's neat to see this sort of like promulgating to Lovecraft and then Lovecraft handing it back to Merritt. 
both of these are sort of like you know lengthier novels than some of the other short, shorter stuff that we we talked about before. Well, and just his his breadth of of interesting folklore and arcane knowledge. I mean, he had uh, among his hobbies. He first of all he collected occult literature and tomes, and when he died, it was rumored to be about five thousand volumes in in just in just his library of occult lit. Hashtag goals. Yes. Um, and then he cultivated. <laughs> how, how close are you guys to that meeting? That number. It depends on what you call occult. I mean, the DCC shelves themselves. Right. <laughs> Uh, he also cultivated plants linked to uh, to witchcraft and, and magic, like monkshood, wolfsbane, uh, peyote, cannabis. Uh, so you know he was a he was a free thinker for his time. Uh, so that makes a lot of sense, considering the main character in this book is a botanist. Oh yeah, about that yeah. I I, I read I. <laughs> I actually read this one. I didn't listen to it. In fact, uh, Bob was holding the copy that I read uh, straight from the paperback. And I think um, 280 pages or so. That's why I said this one's kind of a, a longer tale than most that we go over, which are, you know, between 100 and 200 pages. So 281 pages. Yep. I, I was kind of surprised by the length of this one. And didn't matter if I was going to read through it. Uh, it was surprisingly, I mean, I want to say surprisingly good, but it seems like my favorite books that we've reviewed have been prior to the 20s, the mm. 1920s. Well, and the, the thing about Merritt is, I mean, he was making his living as a journalist. So he was... And he was one of the, the top paid journalists uh, of the time. In 1919, he was making uh, something like $25,000 in 1919 money. Wow. Uh, by, the time he, by the time he retired from journalism, he was making $100,000 a year. I mean, he was a very highly regarded journalist. And when he, when he started writing you know, fiction, his, his language... And his his cadences stayed with him. I mean, you know, this story is sort of like the man on the scene, right? It's it's you know, well, well, here's what's happening right now, and this guy's come up, and this is going on, and so <laughs> that that direct insertion of of the narrator uh, in in this particular story really plays to his journalistic strengths. Yeah, it's really interesting reading this, and you have to kind of put it in the context that this is a really early version of this type of story because you know once you've read lovecraft or derelict you you have all this kind of like the intro that's in this book is very much a trope right you have this sort of like letter to the society then it's like sort of a tale it's like a double trope actually it's like a letter to the society and then a tale told to dr goodwin by doc martin but this is really you know a, a first or one of the first kind of precursors to all those that came later and that's a that's actually kind of a formula that can get a little irritating, but it was, it was, it worked here. You know, I, I actually, you know, kind of in the context of it being an early novel and, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a very seamless because I think you get to know Throckmorton particularly well. It's not like this is sort of like a removed character. It's really that you're telling, he's telling a story and you are almost a first person in that story. And I think that's what makes it, you know, effective. Um, 
but yeah, it, it, it's, it is, I think Jen started your point. This is, it's kind of this earlier, it's timelessness though, is what really kind of lends itself to really enjoying it. Um, it doesn't feel like particularly, you know, so rooted in his time that he can't, it's removed from our experiences. And, and I think that's kind of a fun part about it too. Oh, yeah, and, and you know, besides the overarching theme of essentially the survivor's account, it is provide as provided to the quote International Association of Science end quote, including redactions, which just <laughs> tickled me to no end. Uh, but they there were some inconsistencies with like the initials of the president of the association. I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll chalk that up to a typo. <laughs> I think. Well, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, at the beginning, you mentioned that this is actually a, it's a combination of the moon pool and conquest of the moon pool. And I, I hunted down the text of the original moon pool, which was not as easy oh. to find as I would have liked. Um, and essentially the first five chapters are the moon pool and everything that follows is conquest of the moon pool all were all were published in all story magazine but conquest was serialized over like five or six weeks which it makes sense based on its size yeah and i think what that first five chapters that's really brock martin's retelling and his eventual recapture right that's kind of where that's, yeah and that's and it's interesting because that first five chapters is it's very it feels very different it's like you know it's a lot more into the mystery and the creepiness of it, I should say, versus the latter half, which is, it's it's fun, but it's I think it feels a little bit more John Cartery, right? You know, where this heroic, not necessarily Dr. Goodwin, but these sort of elements of heroism from these four characters are sort of thrust into this, you know, unknown place or this mysterious place. And there's like a love theme and these kind of, you know, rescuing the princesses themes. And it's very two distinct, you know, um, yes, periods, you know that it seems like, and I can I can understand that now a little bit more from the uh, you know the breakup of the the writing. Yeah, the, it extends the uh, lost world tradition. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, it it certainly it certainly doesn't invent it, but it it does build on it. I, I was and I I went through I went through the Sanctum archives and I found that we have here is the 1919 first edition. Wow. <laughs> then there is. The 1944, oops, Murder Monthly Magazine. <laughs> and that's the same sort of publication that we have uh, Burn Which Burn In, right? Yes. Okay. And then Avon 1978. And I, I was when I was looking for information, because that the cover on the 78 is beautiful. It's by Rodney Matthews. And the original pencil sketch for that cover is on sale online by <laughs> Rodney Matthews. If anyone, if anyone has a spare $3,200 lying around that they would like to use to buy, you know, a piece of art to hang in the Sanctum library. You are <laughs> killing me. <laughs> uh, just reach out, let us know. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love that first edition that you guys have. That's really great. And it just, there's there's so much to this. You were you were mentioning Mark about the love influences, and there's there's a lot of talk that the Moon Pool influences influenced the Call of Cthulhu, mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and that the setting of uh, Nan Madal is is perhaps inspired Rolier. Mm-hmm. So and then you know, and then yes, you're right. You know, Dwellers in the Mirage, right back. You know, Merritt was Merritt took that influence and built upon it, and drew it in. But I mean, he th- he ties so much of this to to really cool cultural mythological roots, dealing with like you know the Irish and, and, and Norse mythology, and I I really dug that. I, I dug not only the the combination of the two, but in a way that they're also kind of tied to this almost Dunsanian Elfland Celtic mythos, yeah. right? Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. Like the like there are you know the the through line is of course um, you know Larry's you know sort of uh, Irish the O'Keefe belief, yeah the O'Keefe <laughs> you know belief um, you know and and how that sort of plays out with the the silent ones right you know being you know sort of the the, the embodiment of that. But there's, it's 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 also got a lot of unique elements. I mean, they're like the frogmen and the dwarves and the and like the shining one itself. You know, these are it's it's not you can't directly correlate it to like a specific mythology. And I kind of like that. You know, just in terms of he's drawing inspirations, but he's creating his own sort of web of things. You know, from that. And yeah, that's fun. That's that's fun. And, and there's also a little bit of mystery there, right? Because you don't really know the full cosmology. You just have this kind of like snapshot in time that they are now they've had this you know long history of evolution and you know um you know these kind of creatures that come down there but you don't really get a sense of like the whole picture which is kind of uh you know leave it to the mystery which is always a fun thing to do yes and i, I really enjoyed the fact that like observing the islanders as as they're approaching hmm. this mythological place in the Pacific Islands, the description of the the natives was not dismissing, uh, dismissive or like denigrating, like some of the other authors of the time may have just, <laughs> uh, you know, totally wrote them out as ignorant natives or something. But I, I think it's a really rare thing of its time. Plus, for for 1919, wasn't that a little early for evolutionary theory? I, I was a little impressed there. It was pretty, I would say, you know, my understanding and not not having <laughs> depth study that, you know, when it, the late 1800s and the early 1900s were obviously like a time of sort of conflicting um, positions on this. You know, there was still a lot of work to do as far as like, you know, people, you know, uh, kind of getting converted or understanding evolution and not you know, misunderstanding it and applying it in different ways. But I, you know, I think by 1919, it was largely, you know, yeah. accepted, accepted maybe like, you know, the scopes. You know, yeah, I would say the, until yeah. we get to the scopes monkey trial, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, really but I think, about, I, I don't, um, I mean, I think like Merritt would have encountered and, you know, the, the general sort of scientific support for it was there. So I, I don't think it was necessarily too early for that. It was just, he was drawing from it and trying to, you know, tell a good story out of it i think well and some of the some of the the science that he uses uh you know when like the uh like the keth and the way it's it's breaking down molecular bonds into into you know electrons and i was like wow this is this is pretty heady stuff for for something written in 1919 it was it was really i mean you, you don't see 
stuff that well described now. Um. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's actually that's another thing that this is really in in many ways it's it's, it's a sci-fi you know novel because of the advanced technology that they encounter in the in the different technology they encounter, and that's a cool aspect that we don't get as much of in in some of the other appendix and works that we've read. Yeah, and, and really just thinking about the how did they phrase it uh, the Earth face versus the earth heart right the center of the earth was the earth heart mm. and talking about how everything came from that center and i think that really gets into uh was it fauna rora fauna fauna rora rora no r-o-a roa uh it's said to be the maker of all things, dwelling far away, and the professor believed this to be like the original name of the Polynesian god, Tangaroa. I don't know why that's so hard for me to say tonight. Sorry. <laughs> oh, there's just, there's so much, so much to love. Depth, right? Yeah, there, there's so much depth. There's so much to love. There was only one thing that, that, that left me, that left me slightly disappointed and that was, you know, there's there's all sorts of of teasing of you know major involvement by the Fae, right? We have we have a leprechaun that comes and speaks to the O'Keefe and you know, the O'Keefe Banshee, and if something happens to him, <laughs> she'll sweep across the land with armies of the Fae. And there is no Chekhov's leprechaun here. No. <laughs> um, it's, it's mentioned early on, and uh, and they keep referencing it. Oh, you know, if something oh, bad's going to happen, the Banshee will appear. So I'm fine. Oh, yeah. And all it did was serve to give uh, Larry this feeling of absolute immortality. Nope, the Banshee's not here yet. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> and, mean, I kept, and I kept going, I've seen yeah, it done but, more poorly. But, uh, uh, so so just, just sort of his his sort of blasé approach to everything was was kind of this underlying current of humor that I greatly enjoyed. Mm -hmm. um, well, then we have the infusion of early 1900 politics, right? The Russians are evil. <laughs> yes, yes. Look, look, uh, it's, it's over 100 years later. It hasn't changed. The blondes of Miria, who had been inbred from the Moon King's line, were the <clears throat> superior and ruling class. Mm -hmm. Whereas the, the Sun King's line, oh, Lakla says that they had risen above. So they were purged of dross and and. The silent ones were therefore the higher and nobler class, but you know the blondes were the ruling class. I'm just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> merit too soon, dude. Uh, <laughs> but it's also really interesting how the silent ones, with their Akla or Aka, Akla, the uh, frog people. The, the, right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Trachians, uh, the, the silent ones, outside, uh, outsiders came in and they were accepted readily. They mm -hmm. weren't distrusted. They weren't, sus you know, they weren't suspicious of these new people. And the dichotomy, it really is a land of like 
good versus evil. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's another sort of like of the time, I think, you know, these these stories tend to have very much a a pure, you know, conflict, right? You know, there's there's the evil woman, the evil queen, and there's the good, you know, uh, queen. And they're they're very clear from the beginning. And that's, you know, that's, you know, the central conflict is, you know, not necessarily so much about the gray shades between them. And it's like that in Dwellers as well. You know, there's this very much like a very similar theme. It is interesting, you know, that the evil queen and uh, O'Keefe are, you know, they're sort of positioned as this love triangle, right? You know, that is is somewhat one-sided in regards to, Mm -hmm. but, you know, that that being like this, um, you know, key commonality between them is this foreigner who comes in who's very, you know, alive, right, you know, in all senses of, of the word. And he's, um, he's, they both are drawn to him in, in such a, you know, deep way. Well, I, I, I found it interesting, I mean, because there was, there was that extra level, right? Because you, you normally can have like, you know, okay, there's the downtrodden working class and they want to rise up against, against their rulers. But the rulers were essentially also a theocracy where God was actually present, and and so they weren't you know, they were they were they were rising up against the you know because we we have the we have that execution at the beginning right that that horrific execution via the Keth, yeah. and it's because they you know, they would not embrace the shining one, and it's like wow but the shining one's their god and oh this is this is like wow this is like ri- rising up you know, against against the king and queen. And the Catholic Church all at once, while God is standing there looking at you, or or an effigy of the God because Thanaroa was the creator of all things that everybody still worshipped. Remember that that was yeah, well, that, was, but that was but they weren't monotheistic. Yeah, the, the Shining One was was you know, the the God that was actively and directly worshipped, despite really being a creation of, of the silent ones of the gods. Yeah. Yeah. Or uh, just of wow. the powers that be or <laughs> the most, yeah, whatever you, just, just yeah. ancient beings, you know, yeah. according to the story, ancient beings that had evolved differently. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Mark, you talk about uh, O'Keefe being, you know, the shared interest. If I'm reading this correctly, weren't, all the Mirian men depicted as trolls, like varying colors and heights, but they were all troll-like. Yeah, they weren't as. Uh, yeah, I mean, this gets into some of the complications with any of the writing where we. You mentioned it, Jen. Like, there's some politics, but there's also this sort of white savior sort of aspect mm-hmm. that present these novels. And O'Keefe sort of represents that. You know, the 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 idealized sort of human compared or contrasted to. The people that Laka is, you know, with in in that sense, um, but he's an outsider, right? You know, I think that's that's part of what you know is, is trying to be told here as well. It's not just that's the the interesting element to them is, you know, he's he comes from the surface world, and um, you know, he's he is human. So, mm-hmm. well, and I then mean, on the works. exact opposite end of the spectrum are the silent ones, right? Who are who are like. Much, much taller. 
They have six-fingered hands with no thumbs. They're they're sort of human, sort of avian. <laughs> and then the way their skulls are described with those elongated conical skulls stretching backwards. Yeah. The i the idea when 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 the idea is put forth that well you know obviously it's just an evolutionary you know fork. I was like really really they've got like feathery things really that's that's what, okay but that's. All right, it was 1919. Evolution was still fairly young. They didn't know about <laughs> DNA. Okay, all right, yeah, all right. But but the the description is so delightfully alien, both literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. That it, it really sets them apart as these strange <laughs> outsider beings. Yeah, and they, I mean they're almost like angelic, but they're this sort of weird creature. You know, it's almost like. I was thinking, you know, at the end of the Dark Crystal, when the two, the Skeksis and the, and the, I can't remember the name of that one, merge and they come to this like glowing light sort of aspect. That's what I was looking or thinking of when I was thinking, when I was envisioning what the description was. And you talk about, you know, the, the lovely use of language and everything. I still think as in depth as it gets sometimes with, I mean, come on, the observation of all the, the flora there, that makes perfect sense coming from a botanist, right? But I found it easier to get through all of these descriptions of unnameable and undescribable things, indescribable, sorry, uh, than I can with Lovecraft's writing. Well, I think that's because Merritt's Merritt's language is very rich, but it's not necessarily obscure or arcane. It's just, at least, at least not to someone, someone of my age. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, OED uh, outliers. There. But there, I mean, but there's some but not great up. descriptions, like when when the mist is when the mist is appearing, and he describes it as if the air is curdling. You know that's that's graphic. It it you know the mm-hmm. term evokes a particular you know <laughs> negative response. You know his the word choices are really nicely done, but unlike unlike uh, Lovecraft, who just sort of made things up as he went along, and uh, and Dance, who definitely <laughs> made things up as he went along. Um, Gotta be honest, they're not. Most of the most of the terms he's using aren't that. They're they're not that out of the ordinary, other than you know they're they're starting to fall off. They're they're words they're words that that people know, but perhaps don't use in common parlance, you know, in everyday conversation anymore. Yeah, and I can imagine that a lot of that's probably his journalistic background coming in exactly. to, be able to like convey stories to people. He had to be able to communicate, and he couldn't have like the Dunsany, you know, sort of. Um, you know, elegance or uh, you know elevated language you know, florid language in that way my experience was i think i first read this i only read it one time before but i read it maybe eight nine years ago when i was first kind of delving into the appendix N. you know that was sort of my one of my starts of my journey was you know both jack vance and then Merritt. i don't know why i chose this too but you know but it was i remember it being um a much higher barrier for me then and I think over my experience in, in the last eight years of reading more of these stories, especially more of the period stories, the second time I read it, it was so easy. I mean, it was like, it was just so, it was so easy to enter into and read and really enjoy. And I think a lot of that is just that 
you know, as an experienced, more experienced reader of these, the, the novels of the time and sort of comparative to, like you said, Bob, the more, not extreme, but just on the other end of the spectrum, like Lovecraft or, or Derelith or Dunsany, it, it really is a lot easier to read and a lot more navigable, right, from a reader's perspective. I, I, I just thought that the experience was kind of neat, that contrast between the first time I read it, like, wow, this is, this is something unlike I've really delved into before to now it's, it's, you know, I've, I think it's, I have more context for it. Well, and it's, it's kind of funny because I mean, I discovered Merritt at about the same time I was discovering like Niven and Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke and Asimov. And literally about the time this came out, this is the copy, well, not the exact copy, but this is the printing that I read when it was released, the, the 1978 edition. And when, when you look on the cover. <laughs> yeah. When, when you look at the fact that, you know, th this is, you have cited in Appendix N, Gary Gygax said that Merritt is one of his favorite authors. It, it really, it, it just laid, laid in hooks. And I think, I think my discovery of Merritt when, kind of set, set the tone so that when I, dis, when I found Lovecraft, as, as is inevitable, all roads lead to Lovecraft <laughs> in pop culture, at least these days, um, I was, I was, I was already primed to just dive in and, and work my way through that language. Merritt's, Merritt's stuff is just, it's more approachable. And I don't know. I just, he, he seems to, uh, to have a much more upbeat view of humanity as a whole in this book than anything you would ever find in like Lovecraft. <laughs> yeah. I, I will say I, I was expecting something more along the lines of horror, especially given creep shadow and burn, which burn. Um, this had some tense elements and perhaps some that would have made people shock, <laughs> shocked back then. But uh no, it, it was really more of a thrilling overall adventure with so many different settings to it that you could encapsulate. And yeah, I, I there's there's a lot of stuff here. I almost think yeah. we should uh, maybe get to some of the things we would want to stat. <laughs> I just want to know. This, this is a podcast about DCC. Let's talk about DCC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say one more quick thing before I forget it is there, while it is sort of an adventure novel, there are real stakes, you know, for some of the the oh, yeah. characters, right? Like Olaf and his child, you know, that's a very tragic scene. You know? Yeah. And, and Throckmorton. Olaf is just and, tragic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, but but it is like one of, the, like you said, I think a more hopeful, you know, story in, overall in terms of like how it's resolved. But yeah, let's get to things instead. I'm excited about um, some of the things that <laughs> you guys came up with. I well, mean, I, I can't stat up the teleportation, but that was probably the best description I've ever read of it. <laughs> I liked, I, you know, I, I sort of liked the, uh, the the combat levitation, right? They, what they call it, the, the anti-gravity bombs. They were like the size of a grain of sand. Oh, and yeah. then this yeah. entire portion of the garden just rocketed up into space and then came hurtling <laughs> back down. Um, it, was, it was one of several things in this that really felt like high, you know, sci-fi tech, like, mm -hmm. like you were mentioning, Jen. Um, there was the, the Keth, 
where uh, where there was the the crystal that harnessed this strange material that would break things down at a molecular level and could be projected outwards. Uh, that was well. Let's so face it, that, disintegration ray, basically. But it was it was, a, it, it it was, was a combination part. disintegration ray and light spell because <laughs> because you broke down into glittering motes of light that stayed. And, you know, at the end of the book, they're talking about how they went in where the where the bat where the final revolutionary battle had been held, and the, there was just motes of light everywhere. Yeah. Worst cantrip ever. <laughs> I think the other part about that though is when I think Locke is trying to demonstrate it against the vase, and O'Keefe just whips out his pistol and shoots it and breaks apart the vase like really quickly before she can disintegrate it. Yeah. Just... <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. There was there was a delightful description of a carnivorous moss, and you know there was there was kind of this there was a moment in the book that that has something about, you know this carnivorous maybe sort of moss thing, and then we have the aside that goes into well on these islands this moss has been discovered that grow, you know, it hits your skin it grows in and spreads amongst the capillaries and begins feeding from your bloodstream and just leaves you as a dead husk and there's nothing you can do but you tear out your own flesh i was like oh i am all about this real world carnivorous moss uh that was just wow that was just such a such a Wait, so so nothing can be used with the exploding moss lands that just create people-shaped hedges and shrubs. Right. <laughs> okay. Um then then of course there were the dead alive as opposed to, you know, the undead. They were and they were kind of a very specific form of undead though. As as we discover at the end of the story when you know they're they're looking at them now. They're no longer animate, and you can see where their veins have all collapsed in their bodies. And Ugh. you know they were yeah. <laughs> by by whatever had been fueling them. Um, that sort of I don't know if mm-hmm. I would do them as a as a new type of undead, or if I would maybe write something up to add to the kind of tr- undead traits at the beginning of, beginning of the monster section, but certainly well-deserving of a look. As long as you include, because it's on my list, so it would need to be, like, incorporated, how would the speak with dead spell interact with them? <laughs> well, <laughs> it probably wouldn't, because their soul... There were, there was that whole argument of whether or not their souls were still there, because you know, Throckmorton had, had found his wife... But they were they were saying the soul's gone, but the their love was so strong, which sort of feeds up to you know love will save the day. So mm-hmm. their souls are gone, but the vibrations of love continued. So are you know can you really communicate with them? Um, the the I think they were the, the Akka A K K A. I'm going to go with Akka the 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 frog people who mm-hmm. were. I mean they were they were described as like being eight and a half, nine feet tall with their weird conical tipped spears. And they were able to see, you know, kind of see through invisibility when that was confronted. And just, it just the way they're described, you know, bellowing orders and, you know, the big the throat pouch ex- expands out. <laughs> and, you know, normally when you see, when you encounter anything like that, 
all of those all of those actual frog like traits just sort of get ignored and and merit brought some of them to the forefront while also saying but you know they're they're different because you know they don't have that flat forehead it's it's raised up and they're intelligent and then we we discover why the spark of intelligence in them was expanded on um i think they'd be a really neat playable race um, Ooh, yeah. and then I've got to say, if if we're going to talk about the O'Keefe, we also have to talk about Olaf Hedrickson, our <laughs> our, our sailor, the man who lashed himself to the wheel while trying to hunt down his wife. That final battle that he has, mm-hmm. where you know he, I mean, he snaps the guy's back. He's like, okay. Now I'm done, and then drops dead. <laughs> I think I think that almost deserves some sort of like mighty deed of, of perseverance or, or of something, so that if you think you're going to die that round, your mighty deed could be to fight for X rounds longer. You know, if you get a three, it's one round, then two, three, etc., so that you can I- keep fighting beyond, but you know, at the cost of, then you're dead. <laughs> As a Opposed to just a straight fort save. That's really cool. I like that. Yeah, because I mean, let's face it. He wasn't Olaf. Olaf, if you want to, if you want to stat him up, is definitely a warrior. Because mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he they they make the comparisons to Thor. He's wading into battle with a hammer. He's breaking people's spines. Like a six foot long <laughs> handle or something. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's just. Um, but, but when I was reading that, I'm like, you know, at first I was like, well, that's a good example of death throws. I'm like, no, it really isn't. You know, death throws, oh, he gets an extra round of attacks. And no, I mean, he just kept fighting. And then just, and he was beyond, he was beyond the aid of, of the silent one. So it'd be one of those things where it's a trade-off. You want to do that mighty deed and pull it off. Mm-hmm. There's Don't no roll the body. Roll. You're yeah, done. Yeah, no roll the body. Okay. That's what I was asking. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I think I, I think that uh, especially for like a con game or or mm-hmm. something like that, it, it's that great cinematic moment. Of, nope, I'm going to fight on. I'm just uh, I'm leave it all on the table. Yeah. yeah. So that's awesome. Yeah, I like that mighty deed uh, idea because that's something that really plays into the warrior character class. So. Nice. What about you, Mark? What's on your list? Well, I, I mean, I think we were probably all thinking this, but I I, I put it down, um, standing up the Shining One, you know, as the Dweller, that's just, that has to be, you know, yeah. that's that, you know, yeah. and, and it's obviously this very strange DCC-like creature, you know, it's very unique, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those kind of like, you know, totems of, it's not the, it's not orcs it's the orc right you know this is the yes yeah, it's not a shining one it is, it is the shining one and, and it is it is the singular article yeah and there's just so many things that make it such a fascinating you know creature that you can encounter I, I love how you know it's this combination of good and evil these opposites and it's not neutral right it's it's not like they cancel each other out it's it's essentially yeah you know you have experiences of both things at once everybody is sort of you know ecstasy and um, yes, pain and exactly. you know and and just how that could be statted or described in a role-playing sense i think it's a, a really cool thing so definitely the shining one um i'd love That's to see that cool challenge it's a cool challenge yeah um there's the moon pool itself and how this could be a cool corruption table for those who either touch it or drink from it 
you know, it has this sort of radioactive, you know, description. There's a lot of the, like, Finally, the ones themselves, the three that are left. I, I didn't remember that I, this is where I came to it from, but he's basically, Godwin, I think, is referring to the dweller when it comes out over the sea. He's like, it, it reminded me of the winged messenger of the Buddha, you know, whose name is the Akala bird, and whose feathers are woven of moon rays, right? So there's this sort of, like, comparison to the, uh, the, the Buddhistic faith. And that had stuck with me enough to where I already used that to stat up something in <laughs> the greatest thieves of Lagmar um, when we did the tournament. I actually have like an Akla bird in one of the puzzle rooms and I'd forgotten about it completely until I reread it. And I was like, oh, sometimes I do write things down and take, you know, have an idea from them and it pops up somewhere. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I love the fact that I'd already started that, but I also just love that image of a bird whose, you know, feathers are woven of moonlight and, you know, I tried to come up with a, you know, way of using it in the greatest sea. So um, that that was fun to re-encounter. Um, obviously, like the door to the, you know, to the, the underworld itself is this very creative puzzle on how to open it. It's not something you can just lockpick or, you know, use uh, mm -hmm. your 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 fight <laughs> to break down this this is a creative way of having to intuit okay it's got this sort of relationship it's you know the the thing that comes out is sort of like this moon-based creature how can we get in there and be safe because the you know, obviously they can you know open it when the moon is there but the dwellers there and they come up with this very creative sort of let's let's focus the moonlight on it when the moon is not at its peak um, but those kind of things are very much like in line with, you know, let's get more creative with the puzzles on how to open things and not just put a, you know, a DC 20 lock pick, you know, check or something like that. I think that, Ooh, that yeah. the more kind of fun stuff that you can do to deviate from those things is is welcomed by players as long as it's thematic and not too challenging, you know, for for where it's going to get so irritating. Uh, like we sometimes do in tournaments. So. <laughs> I, mean, I, I was going to say... Uh, Inverse color theory. Players, <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, God, beware the Terry rooms. <laughs> yes. Um, there's another... Uh, in a, I kind of, Bob, going back to your sort of like, you know, how he's not necessarily like um, creating phrases or anything like that, but he's he's very much into like recalling or allusions to other works or to other mythologies. There's like another throwaway phrase that he had where um, he was calling, you know, the under the approach to the underground. Like I think they get to the the chamber of the moon pole, and he says it's just like the the Jin King and you know his kingdom in the magic mountains of of Kaf. and that's just like one line. But it's like, man, I would love an adventure, you know, in the magic mountains of Kaf and where the Jin King lives. You know, I can see that being sort of like a you know, its own thing. So just like, I love the fact that he has these kind of phrases like the aqua bird or this, you know, the reference to the Jin King. Well, that, and, and those literary I, references, right? Yeah. I mean, he directly references War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Right. No, yeah. This is, these are all things that are yeah. real. And, and they are things that he probably would have countered as part of his journalistic career or just his reading. And it's not like it's a made up reference, right? It's, it's a real reference. You can go and, and, you know, yeah. Ground for so I think that's a, that's kind of a characteristic merit that's worth pointing out. You know, just as I enjoy. Um, the last thing I had was related to the, how they open the moon door, but um, you know the 
Pepperoni Ray condenser, you know, that he goes to so much care to acquire. And there's this sort of like he has to wait weeks for it to come in from, you know, outside of Australia. And then there's lucky there's a shipment of them. And I was like, what is a Becquerel Ray condenser? And it's a real, it's, you know, Becquerel Rays are a real thing. They're, you know, a unit of measurement. And he's got this idea of like, you know, creating these lenses that focus the light. And I thought that would be awesome, you know, sort of an analog in a fantasy setting is how do you focus magic or phlogiston in a way that, you know, augments his power? And you can imagine sort of like a, a mad scientist wizard type that's got lenses put together to try to augment his ritual castings. And you could do that to get like a plus three to your spell casting check. If you do mm-hmm. all the time, like, you know, setup and, and preparation, it only works this one time or this, you know, the specific conditions. But like, I, I think that's an underappreciated, you know, thing about the DCC core rule books. It's like, I'm sure Spellburn's covered this, gen, you know, but you know, where these like sort of like minor rules are like, you can, you can beef up your spell checking, your spell casting check through preparation and uh, what i'd like to have is just more elements to make it you know realistic right you know what is you know in the fantasy setting realistic in the sense yeah how are you actually making it rather than just hand waving right and this is a kind of a cool way that i think you go to the you quest for it you know you have to go and get the lenses ground you have to go and (laughs) put the mechanics together and it's all for this like extra plus one to your check, you know, so that you can, you know, summon, you know, the, you know, the demon that you want to speak to or to speak to the spirit of the dead. So that's like something I, I like to just think about carrying forward or those kind of small things that you can place and make it more, more realistic. So I, like I totally dig that because, because ritual casting in DCC, I don't think gets enough love mostly because, you know, you're not going to draw a magic circle and, and, uh, <laughs> you know, light a whole bunch of candles in the midst of combat to cast magic missiles. So people tend to, to yeah. overlook that a lot of the times. But that's but, why it's a yeah. one turn as opposed to one round spell. Yeah. Things like and, that. And Gronk Heelan's right. You know, People tend to hand wave patron bond, and it's a fantastic spell for ritual mm-hmm. casting. It, because it, I mean, patron bond, right? I mean, yeah. We're talking a very lengthy spell. That is, yeah, that is it, something. And you I do think rather than like a, yeah, like a judge just you know taking the easy approach, and like you said, hand, you know, hand waving it, it's like if you really want to, you know, up your 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 spell check on this, you're going to have to pull together the, everything to do this, right? And it's going to be hard, and it's going to be its own sort of mini quest. But yeah, I think it's it's one thing that, like you said, is underappreciated by players too. Where, yeah, they may really, really want to get the the edge on that that spell check as much as possible, and they may still have to burn, you know, luck and you know, get it. And it's a great opportunity for role play. Yeah, yeah. So a lot, of, a lot of stuff in here that's that's you know worth worth studying. And um, Jen, you have a, a long list this, too. This is. This is so ripe for adventure, right? If you wanted to actually sit down and stat this book, it would be a campaign. It would be a two or three year campaign. <laughs> uh, so speaking of patron bond, I would definitely go with Thanarara. Let me try that again. Thanaroa as a deity. Although I have to wonder now, I'm as I'm sitting here thinking about it, I wonder if there's part of that that's been taken and distilled into Danthar, the dwarven god, hmm. for the the maker of all things, dwelling far away, like within the earth. Uh, and there was this really weird effect when they got in that was kind of like a fog of war. 
And it was described later to be a disruption of light and sort of an illusion, but it looked like inky blackness that would be dangerous to go near. And I kind of dig that <laughs> as far as something to stat up. Um, what kind of things would happen if you did enter without triggering the right, uh, I don't know, flower petal push button, <laughs> uh, if you didn't have the right access key, etc. cetera. Uh, the, let me see if I get this right. The Murians had phonic spheres that, if I recall, just kind of floated alongside them and occasionally gave off some sort of subsonic thing. That, oh, oh, never mind. I can't tell you that because the little ball told me I couldn't. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, besides that being just like the perfect judgment guffin, <laughs> right. I think mm. it'd be a, a fun trade good or just something fun for people to find in their in their explorations. Especially uh, if it mutters to them in a language they don't understand. Yes. So there's, so there's, so there's oh. this annoying learning curve of you know it's it's telling you you're about to die. You need to run now. What's it say? I think it's telling me I've got to order lunch. I'm not sure. Maybe the chromic sphere is one of is a new manifestation of the comprehend languages spell. Or maybe it's a manifestation of a patron AI. Mm. Okay, that works too. Uh, next on my list would be the Yetka, which was the ruby-bloomed vine that had the five flower heads and mm -hmm. strikes for the throat. It was called the Kiss of the Yetka. And that's where the sadhu comes from. That's where the sadhu poison comes from. But the fact that the flower is sentient enough to do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Gimme. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I, I totally dug that. When, when, when she's got it, like, curled around her arm, she's like, please put that oh, down. Yeah. Why? It's just, it, it likes me. Please put that down. <laughs> You're making me very nervous. Please put that down. But it's my friend. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would, I would absolutely do the other moss lands that are mentioned, where they were passing all these hedges and pieces of flora that looked vaguely humanoid and other creatures made out of green. And if you didn't follow instructions, you become just like that little forest. Uh, the Murians also had some fantastic tech in the form of the cloaks they weren't really named, but they were cloaks of being unseen, shall we say. Well, the... Like invisibility, but it just, you could look straight at it and it didn't matter if the, the person wearing it was moving. You didn't sense it unless you were an Akka. And it was, it was so weird because... The, the description of it kind of changed throughout the story because when we first encounter it, they're, they're described as almost like loose wrappings around their body, but they're very sparse and you can still see most of, you know, most of their bodies when he looked through the lens that actually allowed him to see the invisible. 
right? Most of their body was exposed, not covered, but somehow they were still completely invisible. But later we get a whole lot of, here's my head. Now here's my head here, but I can cover it up again. And so it kind of bounced back and forth. Pardon? Didn't you say that the first few chapters were one publication? Well, the, the first the first time we encounter that is is during Conquest. It's it's after chapter five. Oh, okay. Because it's it's once they're it's it's uh, when when they're they're having the contest. You know, well, I've got the castle. Yeah, well, I've got bang, I've got a gun, and I can do this. Oh, but can you do this? And there's this whirlwind, and really, what it is is like six or seven guys wearing these things, roughing him up. Um, so I, I thought that was kind of, kind of, I liked the initial description more because it seemed more like, you know, wrappings imbued with greater power than just kind of like a hooded cloak, but they sort of became hooded cloaks at the end. Well, Mm. if you remember the basic classes within the Murians, uh, Yalara and the followers of the Shining One, were soldiers and dream makers, basically artists. And we didn't see the, shall we say, um, the Russian spy or a lot of the goings-ons behind the scenes uh, between those two instances. So maybe they upped their tech a little. Yeah, but I mean, those were really neat. (laughs) I'm totally with you. (laughs) Um, and finally on my list are the colored orbs that both protruded from and uh, coalesced about the Shining One because mm. they were so reminiscent of the Ion Stones for me. And I know pot came before kettle, eat, or horse came before cart, all that good stuff. Um, <laughs> but this isn't a blatant inspiration of Vance's. I'm positive of it because you have the seven colored orbs. They all seem to do their own thing and have their own effect. And you've got amethyst, saffron, emerald, azure, silver, rose of life, and moon white. So it's very, very similar to the color scheme given to the ion stones by Vance. And I mean, they're definitely more powerful and they have more things going on with them. So, I mean, why not file off the Ionstone serial number and <laughs> give them another shot, right? Uh, maybe they aren't attuned to humans so much as just otherworldly creatures. Yeah, I like that idea as a launching point uh, for scouting mm-hmm. those out. Yeah, I'm with you. Okay, Mark, what would you bring to the table for audio or props? Oh, uh, I'm kind of sparse here. The the two things I was thinking of when I was reading and kind of reflecting on it for the show. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of um, aspects of Moonlight that are very powerful in terms of the, the storytelling of this. And I was thinking, you, you know, you know, Moonlight as a mood setting is kind of a, a fun thing to play with, especially creating or recreating the atmosphere if you're trying to you know tell a story like this or you know where there's limited lights I, I i think the idea of like okay you know let's let's really get into you know darken the room you know cast something that that recreates moonlight or even phase of the moon and use that you know sort of as a mood setting 
Or just go out and play uh, under the light of the full moon. You know, just <laughs> roll some dice and get outside. And on a nice summer night, you know, you could you could actually use the full moon as kind of a, a fun way of, um, you know, taking your table, uh, you know, and, and doing something a little bit different with it. So I thought that was kind of a, an inspirational yeah. idea I got from the reading. Um, and then the other thing is sort of another sort of prop. It's not really, there's not a, a music, it's the, but the bells, you know, that accompany the, the dweller, you know, this kind of, you know, tinkling sound that's always sort of described in very eerie and, you know, it's, it's a precursor to the, you know, the, the shining one coming and accompanies it. And I, I just love that sort of eeriness and, and sort of recreating that, you know, the, that, that feeling and vibe, I think would be a fun, you know, another thing that you could bring to your, your table to enrich the audio experience in that, that way. So, and it was almost hypnotic, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think it, yeah that you could really easily sort of recreate something like that and and make it a very simplistic sort of you know John Carpenter esque score you know to accompany your your gaming <laughs> yes. table and just make it very you know the notes you know that are in the background. I can't believe I didn't think of it until you just mentioned it. Um, there is a, I will say, an appendix and adjacent movie called Equinox. It's adjacent because, because Fritz Leiber uh, appears in it. Um, okay. And, and in, in the movie, when, uh, when a cross is, is used, there's kind of this, this faint tinkling of chimes. And now I will never unhear that <laughs> when I'm, when I'm reading the moon pool. Huh. Nice. What about you, Jen? Uh, I would definitely bring the phonic spears into play as a prop. <laughs> I know it's a, a, a cheap gimme, but I, I'm here for it. I also think the Yetka would be easy to craft. I mean, I've seen so many uh, like birds of paradise that in the, shall we say, faux um, genre. <laughs> and I think it'd be easy enough to create something like that with the wires to pose it properly. And I I don't know. I something really draws to me from that. I I kind of dig the idea of just handing that out, right? Uh, I have a couple of audio finds. Simply, <laughs> I know who knew. Um, because of the Irish feel of this and the infusion of different cultures into what. You know, Larry's still trying to sing his Irish songs, and, and I love that. Nobody understands it. And Which is half the fun. Flipping through last night as I was finishing up the book, I stumbled upon the Afro-Celt sound system in my library, and specifically the title Release that was a collaboration with Sinead O'Connor. And hmm. it is really awesome. Um, and shortly before the show, I found a couple of songs, including uh, those that were sung by Larry O'Keefe. Uh, uh, one is called The Curse of the Mora, and the other is A Bird in a Gilded Cage. All I could find for that one was a... Uh, I didn't find them on Spotify, so Bob, I don't know if you'll be able to add them to the playlist, but if you can find them tomorrow, maybe you can uh, include them in our, our Yeah. No, if I, well, if I, if I can find them on Spotify, I can add them to the playlist. But I was so 
just stunned by the fact that we have <clears throat> lyrics in here and I was taking photos of the book. <laughs> there's, there's so many great things in the book, yeah. Irish music is something that Irish and Celtic music had me sitting in the stacks of the university library just with books all around as I was hunting down every single version I could of two particular songs. So I, I'm a bit of a nut about that. And this is just kind <laughs> of a return to my roots and I'm, I'm okay with it. <laughs> and now Bob, the floor is yours. Well, for, I'm going to say when, when Jen says this, she's not kidding. Um, when, when Jen, Jen, this is how Jen and I met because of Irish music. Uh, she was, uh, <laughs> she was a member of a quintet called Ishkabaha, which, of course, is, is whiskey. So I'm the guy that married a fifth of whiskey, and I'm I'm very happy. <laughs> um, and so I I really had to work really hard because you, know, Larry the O'Keefe, right? I, that that certainly had you know you know Irish fighting songs in my mind, and maybe mm -hmm. a little bit of Viking music for Olaf. And I really had to rein myself back so I didn't make like a 24 or 48 hour St. Patrick's Day playlist. Um, I mean, that'd be cool too. Oh, you know, I, if people really want one, I'll put one together. But uh, so I, I, I really reined myself in. It's actually one of our shorter playlists. It comes in at like an hour and a quarter. Um, Whoa. Oh, yeah, I, you didn't put I, in full albums. Okay. No, I didn't put in full albums. Um, wow. I, okay. I, there, there's, a, there's a few very notable you know, artists and then some that I don't think people are familiar with. And I'm just going to name the artists because otherwise we'll, mm -hmm. we'll be here till midnight. Right. Uh, First, of course, the Pogues and uh, the Pogues accompanied by the Dubliners, um, Shane McGowan of the Popes, speaking of because Shane McGowan, right? Um, Black 47, Horse Lips, Flatfoot 56. Um, there's a, a, a pirate a pirate group that Jim and I are well acquainted with, the Pirates Charles, and they've got some great, great stuff. Uh, so there's a little bit of Pirates Charles in there. Uh, also, there is an artist, Celtic Metal Dude, and uh, he, is, he is one of the leads from the pirate group, the Dread Crew of Oddwood. Uh, so, so he's done. He's done Reese? some. Uh, yep, that's Reese. He's done some Irish <laughs> Irish metal covers. So there's a couple of those in there. Um, the Young Dubliners, the Bollocks, the Tossers, Patty and the Rats, <laughs> uh, Waylander. Skyclad. Skyclad was like one of the one of the first kind of pioneering Irish folk metal bands, uh, and then Leaves Eyes and Valkyric. So we can get a little bit of, of Viking stuff in there. Uh, and we're getting some important. love in the Twitch chat from Paxaniski. <laughs> yeah, you gotta have well, Dread Cruise. Dread Cruise, just awesome. Oh boy, if this was a pirate episode, let me tell you, um, we would have a forty-hour playlist because I would not be able to, to restrain myself. But I mean, there's. I'd be impressed if it stopped at sixty hours. Well, and I mean, I <laughs> I avoided a lot of a, a lot of the. No, I can't say a lot of them because I, I did I did use like the Pogues, for example, but I avoided a number of the better known kind of rocking Chieftains. Irish groups. Oh yeah. Dropkick Murphys. Yeah. Just yeah. because people are already aware of them. I, I couldn't help myself with the Pogues because Pogues, yeah. Jane McGowan. But for the most part, I tried to go with, with stuff that, 
most people wouldn't be familiar with. Sadly, there was a couple artists like uh, the Wild Celts, who I would have loved to have included, but they are nowhere to be found on Spotify. And, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. you know, they, yeah. they, I'm pretty sure, had broken up long before Spotify was a thing, and that was sort of the mm-hmm. end of that. Um, but, but, yeah, so it's, it is kind of a condensed playlist. If people really want me to, to cut loose and give them a, a, an incredibly long <laughs> playlist of, of Irish music for St. Pat's. I'll do it. I will do it. Don't threaten <laughs> me with a good time. But, uh, <laughs> oh, wow. No. I, I kind of need Bob for other stuff between now and St. Patty's Day. Yeah, there, and there's still, I mean, there's still like, I mean. There's plenty of playlists out there, right? Well, and like, like I said, while it's one of our shorter playlists, there's still like, 40 or 50 songs on it it's yeah yeah and there's a lot of artists that like you said i don't I'm, i haven't heard of and i'm gonna looking forward to that um i'm sure a lot of the listeners have not either I so can't wait to see which young dubs track you put in there i put in a couple <laughs> all right uh well that's pretty awesome bob uh keep remarks word of the day uh, this time I kept it to a single word because, <laughs> like Bob, it was like my last few words have been growing and growing in the list of words, and I think um, this time I was just uh, looking for you know a word that I think uh, I want to use in my writing, and maybe other folks want to you know take it forward as well. But I also thought it was thematic. You know, this is coruscation; it's a vibratory or quivering flash of light or a display of such flashes, and of course that's very much throughout the novel there's always these, these the lights that are part of the the dweller or the the you know the images that are after the the kethrays and all these things um it's a word that just i you know seeing it on the page i just I, i'm delighted whenever i see it encounter it and um it's a reminder to to try to enrich my own writing as much as possible with with here and there words like merit does um, it's also one of these that's, you know, not very frequently used these days. It's uh, in OED terms. It's um, one of the lower, you know, usages, frequency band three. So, um, you know, it's it's worth upping that band somewhat, you know, if it, it's more writing <laughs> and evidence. And, and, so that's well, like three times for every hundred million words? Yes. Yeah, that's the band that, that goes into. <laughs> it's all, it's that hurts very, my brain a lot. I read that more in DCC writings than I do than yeah, I speak, anywhere else. Right? Yeah, I mean, and it's and it's one of these that when I was approaching Merit to reread the Moonfall, I was going, "Oh man, I'm going to have to do like a, not have to. I, I enjoy that, but make another long sort of dictionary list." But mm-hmm. honestly, you know, it's it's not. It, when I was reading it, I was just more reading it for the pleasure of this time, and I wasn't really sort of doing that, you know, documentation yeah, I, approach. So I did notice that last week you'd been reading and not. Taking notes off to the side. I was like, right, yeah, because well, I, I had a book for travel, and it's like one of the things when I'm traveling with a book, I'm reading it on the airplane, and I'm like, you know, reading in the hotel room, and yeah, it was it was nothing that my usual pattern is is more I'm reading and writing, you know, off to the side, but uh, because it was my travel book uh, this last time, I just had more of a pleasure reading, you know, rather than a, a, a study. So, but curscation is a is a very fine word, and happy to promote it. So, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, let's move on to existing. Yeah, I'm looking at the clock. I'm so sorry. I know. Yeah, we need to get through some of this. There, there's so much in here. I, I told you at the beginning. There's a lot to unpack here. 
so I am going to snip through some of my own reskins. Hey, um, on, the, on the bright side, we're the last show before a station sign off for the night, right? <laughs> Kids today might not know what that means, but <laughs> I think when we're done, Elena plays the national anthem and we're out. So it's all good. I, I think she's, <laughs> at a certain point, though, she's just going to play us out, Bob. So we. <laughs> oh, there'll be swelling orchestral music. Yeah. <laughs> well, as we mentioned earlier, there's a lot of influence in Merritt's works that we can see throughout the rest of Appendix N, right? Um, for instance, the Ion Stones, even the description, or okay, the lack thereof, but still the very wild flora uh, that we see in Dying Earth. Uh, even the magic cars feel like they influenced yeah. Ampardatvir, right? Yeah. Uh, but specifically, I think uh, DCC Dying Earth number two, The Sorcerer's Tower of Sanguine Slant by Terry Olson, mm-hmm. has so many elements within this that you could definitely uh, just weave it into maybe Yolara's uh, sitting room or something i mean we've got we've got the stones we we've got the floating stones we've got the magic portals we've got the play of lights and dare i say summoning um so i i think there's a little bit of something in the moon pool for everybody but this particular adventure you could uh get a little bit more use out of perhaps Mm -hmm. rather than just tying it to dying earth. Uh, Next on my list, because of that Dunsany feel, because of the King of Elfland and the whole good versus evil thing, uh, DCC number 92 through the dragon wall by Daniel J. Bishop. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, Technically, the third in the series, it ties together two modules that had been converted from, I believe, 3.5 or somewhere along those lines, uh, two of Harley Stroh's adventures. Uh, but one of my favorite parts in this is the anguished, not dead beings mm-hmm. that you come across. And I, I mean, Bob, you'll love that part. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of Bob, hey, Skull and Crossbones Classics, we had some good bit of sailing in there and uh, sea navigation and Bob. Okay. Um... <laughs> when's, my next, oh, when's my next issue coming out? Uh, I know, I know. No. I, I, I really... I didn't see that... I didn't see that comparison and contrast, but uh, but really? I will accept it. <laughs> Honestly, that was how I that was how the conceit of the travel happens. We're we're sailing through the the Pacific Islands and we're getting this geographic lesson without having it be taught to us, right? It it's not dictated to us. It's actually just coming through in the flow of the narration. And I'm like this would be such a cool setting for uh, something else from Skull and Crossbones. Uh, we also, if you have a hankering for the Celtic flavor, the Isles of the Celts from Ed Stanek and Ray Organ Games. Here, here. There we go. 
I listed Greatest Thieves of Lankmar here uh, specifically for the puzzles and that piece from Mark. Now, Mark, did you say James Posnell has something Celtic out that might have? Well, no, it was more. I didn't have a chance to to research this before the show, but he's got. um, Is it the Feywild? Oh, the Fey. The Fey. Right, and and I I didn't know how if he'd done anything with the Celtic, you know, high ends that you know the 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 beings, you know, the 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 silent ones. So uh, that was just more. I'd I'd like to go back and, and research that a little bit more, but um, you know James Posen obviously you know, some somebody who's done a lot with the Fade uh, Wild work that he's uh, published and definitely worth referencing here. Very cool. Uh, next from somebody that used to be part of our uh, Florida group, yeah. uh, and I apologize ahead of time. Dave Prushbla, oh gosh, I can't even pronounce that. He said there was a schwa in there somewhere. Um, anyway, it's the way station from Purple Duck. I believe it's um, number four in their series of the DCC Adventures. Uh, if you're looking for some quick stats on carts and unknowable passageways and the dwarves of Upanish. Upanish. However, see, pronunciations just aren't happening tonight. I'm sorry, Dave. Uh, But quick stats, here we go. And I would be remiss if I did not mention if we're really going for that lost world feel and the foreign flora and cultures, there's this little thing called the Purple Planet. DCC fans may have heard about it. I don't know. It's been so long since I've heard anything about the Purple Planet. (laughs) (laughs) and there's a handful of backer kits going on right now i'm sure (laughs) we can we can provide links on those Uh, in the interest of time uh (laughs) uh, what what does bob and his co-host have for us (laughs) well um if, if you're gonna if you're gonna talk about lost worlds and parallel planet, I would have to say uh, journey to the center of the earth first of all, right? I mean, yeah, truly, yeah. truly, you know, lost world sort of stuff. We've, we've talked about that recently. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely mutant crawl classics. I, the the technology of the Murians often feels like tech of the ancients. They've got flo- floating cars as as well as as other weird tech that they no longer can make or understand how to make. So that, that to me makes, makes that entire area a perfect place to drop an MCC uh, group into Um, kind of pulling on the, on the, the, the Celtic and your references to Elfland, of course, Michael Curtis's queen of Elfland son. And, and uh, it, that sort of journey in into Elfland, and and this one this one might surprise you as much as Skull and Crossbones classic surprised me, but People of the Pit, you know, if you replace replace the weird okay. tentacle things with with you know the Shining One, and and expand that expand the pit out to be more of an entrance to a larger city, uh, more stratified. And uh, you know more of a, a subterranean hex crawl than than just a dungeon delve, 
And I think it would be a great way to reskin people in the pit. Nice. That could be fun indeed. And Mark, did you have something for this? I, I'm going to keep it extra brief uh, and just say I was thinking about um, some of the the original adventures reincarnated and the Lost City particularly <laughs> because I think that yeah. there's a lot of that you could do there too, a DCC conversion of that. Um, and it obviously it has a lot of inspiration from the original appendix and you know influences and the moon pool being one of them. Um, so that came to mind, um, you know, the journey to the center of Loth Aerith, like you've already mentioned, Bob. I was going to mention one other thing. It's not really a reskin, but it's also kind of along the lines of the greatest thieves. There's there's a little Easter egg sort of journey um, connection between the moon pool and the holiday module that I wrote, um, Twilight of the Solstice. Doug's cover art for that is actually a scene that depicts my version of the the keeper or the dweller in in one of the encounters so it's like kind of this cool green cover with a you know some sort of luminous entity coming out of the the pool and um i always associated the cover with you know the fact that i'd recently read moon pool and you know he had picked that as a a scene to to do the cover art for so um but anyways that's uh that's not necessarily something you can reskin but it's something you can you know take away from Doug's art, you know, which I think is its, its own thing and, um, and very evocative of its, uh, of the, you know, the sense of what it is. Um, but yeah, those are, I mean, all those are really lovely ideas. And so that I think brings us to the next uh, segment. Jen, do you want to introduce that? Oh, our DCC feature for this episode. I went with The Seventh Deadly Pit of Cezarkon by Harley Stroh. I'll read a little synopsis. The doom of Cezarkon is writ large in the stars. However, perverse to the end, the warlock refuses to accept fate's decree and will do everything in his power to escape his doom, even if that means bringing an end to the multiverse. Crucial to his plans are three artifacts. The Crown of Seraphim, Tyvering, the Cursed Foe Brand, and Tarnhelm, the Dragon Helm. Wow, this is this really brings me back because right? the early days of DCC and my one of my first experiences was going through Harley's um, tournament for the Seven Pits at Gary. Which Con. was the seven the seven deadly pits of Cesarcon as yes. opposed to the seventh. Yeah, I, yeah, I was very confused. <laughs> Uh, when Jen mentioned, like, wait, well, we played in that. I, I'm pretty sure it was this. Oh, wait, but we play tested the other. Yeah. Yeah. And then he put it together, and um, I ran this horror group one time, and it was just, it was fun. But I, I just remember that indelible moment of being kind of on the, the, the you know, the, the ecstatic sort of like, oh, this is great. This is, let's get back in line. I'm going to go back and get, you know, see how long you can survive. And somebody got the sword, and they're cutting off, you know, other players' heads with it. <laughs> That was great. So I love this. I love the, you know, what he did with this and how, you know, the play testing and the tournament stuff went um, in the beginning with it too. But it's a, it's, it's a really great adventure on its own and probably doesn't get a lot of attention. No. Because it's in one of the Goodman Games Gen Con program guides, 2015 okay. to be exact. Uh, the reason this came to mind for me is because I actually play tested this at the first Gary Con where I was running events. So shaking in my boots and I'm running this. Thing. <laughs> okay. Um, 
Not only was it the first adventure that uh, I had OSHA regulations thrown in my face for. (laughs) (laughs) This this adventure is so not OSHA safe. Um, But there's, I mean, okay, dwarves, right? I think that this would be an extra insidious adventure if you were to put those many, many, many dwarves Mm -hmm. In those cloaks of invisibility? Yes. I mean, they're already pretty formidable. Uh, but I mean, like I said, there's the moon pool is such a prolonged adventure, right? It, it's probably twice as long as what we would normally review. So granted, this only covers a portion of it, but the overall in, environment of it seems to embody so much of the working class of Muria. And the surly attitudes toward outsiders who have yet to dance with the Shining One. I also think that the ogre-like creature could be a stand-in for, was it Luger? The tall red dwarf that uh, paired up with the Russian spy as the villain. Right, right. It's one that Olaf kills at the end. Yes. I was going to say spoilers, but the book was written in 1919. Yeah, the book's 105 <laughs> years old. It's okay. Oh, yeah, not Martin um, dies and Edith is not. Uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is such like, yes, Vitani Maru, it is a good adventure. Uh, I could wax poetic about this particular little adventure. I mean, much like not in Kansas anymore. It doesn't get a lot of play or airtime because it's inside one of these compilations. So yeah. it's just one more reason they, to go pick up the archives. There, you know how how uh, Goodman is now compiling into book forms mm-hmm. a number of the classic adventures. I really would advocate for doing that with some of these Gen Con and back of the book adventures, just so they get more attention. Then this being a classic example of that. This mm-hmm. is such a formative adventure and experience for me as a introduction to TCC. It's a shame that, you know, that it doesn't get, you know, highlighted more and it's a Harley Storm adventure, you know, it's it's always going to be good, but this in particular I think is just it encapsulates so much of the the weird and the fun and the, you know, the spirit of DCC. So, well, and the write-up in the in the program guide also has like two pages on the seven deadly pits mm-hmm. and you know that that was you know, the first epic dcc funnel tournament and there are notes in there that kind of tie in because harley was using these colored skull cards and everyone had a color <laughs> and bad things could happen if your color got rolled and then you start thinking about you know the, the various you know orb colors and it it really was that was such a great experience playing in that in that tournament and then having something that is distilled from Harley's notes that anybody can sit down and run for their group is is just absolutely fantastic and yeah it's it's a fun adventure it's it's a good time and now would be a great time to point out that uh, rumor has it there might be something very, very similar coming from Mr. Stroh this year at Gen Con. Ooh. Stay tuned. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
On the stay tuned note, I'm taking my cue from uh, Vitani Maru here. And uh, I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in and remind them to stick around. What are we, the second Tuesday of every month? Uh, next month, which would be March, if my calendar is correct, we will be diving into Jack Williamson's epic, The Legion of Space. Should be <laughs> really good. I've never actually read this one either, so it'll be another adventure for us. If you are enjoying the show, please help by posting a review of the podcast on iTunes, comment, or leave a thumbs up on YouTube. Of course, these ratings and reviews help new listeners find the podcast and the community. And we all know this DCC community is something special. Well, uh, why we're here. (laughs) Why we're here. (laughs) Okay. My fellow keepers, any last uh, thoughts from you? I have many. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, First of all, work is progressing on Ashraf Braden's next release which is a tale of a young man tricked by spirits into eating his own eye. Gross. And, uh, Gross. Yes. And, uh, and we will have, we will have information on that, on that particular trickster spirit. Legends of Uganda has been restocked again at the Good and Games online store. Right. Okay. So you get the, the hard copy compilation. Um, the moon pool is in public domain. I think it is the perfect time for someone to, uh, to put out a really nice printing of the moon pool with a brand new moon pool DCC adventure in the back. Someone get on that. General, let me take on any more projects. Because? Because speaking of projects, uh, I've just recently launched a, a longtime passion project of mine has been the idea of translating the Dictionnaire Infernal, which is a kind of dictionary encyclopedia of demonology published in 1818. I've been translating that and I'm creating playable content for every single entry because wow. I'm insane. So I've launched a Patreon to, uh, to cover that. It's at patreon.com slash sanctum media. And, uh, yeah, they're <laughs> having, having a lot yeah. of fun with that so far. And the dictionary and follow there's there's so many great illustrations throughout it these these beautiful woodcuts and illustrations and so much weird stuff i mean we're and you're preserving as much of that as you can oh yeah most certainly all of all of the stuff is is getting translated over all the arts being brought in as we go and i mean our first release has type seven demons so hang on tight <laughs> um, they go up okay. to seven. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> uh, and Mark, any last thoughts from you? Any? I, any yeah, just to, to see to, you next. <laughs> well, I, I was I was just gonna say, you know, it is in public domain. Go out and get a copy of the Moon Pole. It's wonderful to read, especially if you have some travel coming up or in the past. Um, then just say it, it, if you have it, I think Merritt is one of those authors that doesn't uh, kind of like, you know, adventures that are back at Goodman Games books. And, you know, he's not well mentioned or well read as much as like Lovecraft or some of the other contemporaries. And, you know, I think he's definitely worth diving into. And, um, you know, so if you've been inspired by our review and our, uh, DCC review, then, um, definitely suggest going out and reading it, um, the original material. It's really good. And just in case we publish a little late in March or 
you listen a little late, uh, we'll see you at GaryCon next. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be running playtest sessions for Beneath the Isle of Serpents at GaryCon. So, uh, yeah. Very nice. And uh, I'll be there. <laughs> You'll be, be manning the booth. What? You're going to be more important than me. People are going to go to you to get dice. And I'll be playing miniatures with my kids. <laughs> awesome. awesome. Well, we look forward to seeing everyone there. And that's it for us this evening. We hope we've inspired you. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum podcast. The Sanctum Socorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media.